Whoever acknowledges me, says Jesus, before others, I'll also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Our topic is discipleship. There's a cost. Will we bear it? The issue is loyalty. Is Jesus worth it? A few years ago, a luxury shoe store called Palessi opened in Los Angeles. The grand opening was a huge success. They flew in VIPs from everywhere and they boasted uh, several high-profile social media influencers. If you don't know what a social media influencer is, give thanks for small mercies. With the cameras rolling and the champagne flowing, guests were falling over themselves in praise of the footwear, the material, the craftsmanship, the elegance, the Euro chic of it all. But it was all a setup, a real time experiment in consumer behaviour, peer pressure, and group think. The name Palessi was dreamt up by the people at Payless Shoes. And every shoe on sale that night came from the Payless catalogue. The only difference was the astronomical price tag. One guy, pity this guy, he paid $600, real money too, US dollars, 600 bucks for a pair of runners that retailed for less than 40 Now, while it warms the soul to have a laugh at these pretentious social media influencers, I share this with serious intent. Sometimes, and especially when we're under pressure, we can be very poor at determining value. We can very easily lose perspective under pressure. And in this passage, we learn that because of our misplaced fears, when put under pressure, our instinct can be to distance ourselves from Jesus, valuing instead the fleeting promises of comfort and social acceptance. Knowing our weakness, Jesus provides this reality check for any would-be disciple. Being a disciple carries a cost. Will you bear it? The issue before us is loyalty. Is Jesus worth it? If you've got your newsletter there, there's a sermon outline. I've also got the passage and some questions for later. You can see that I've got my first point that humility is the beginning of discipleship. Now, let's have some context. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Matthew 10. Jesus has authorised and sent out his 12 disciples. He sends them out into the lost cities of Israel to people that he describes as being harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Along with power to heal, the primary task of his disciples is to preach and their message is the same message with which Jesus began his public ministry way back in chapter 4, repent, that is turn back to God, turn away from evil because the kingdom is near. In other words, the king of the kingdom has arrived. And now these 12 disciples, they are uniquely equipped for a unique mission at a unique 
time of salvation history. All of that's true. But as chapter 10 progresses, the application broadens as Jesus lays down his expectations for disciples in every age. And so verse 32 begins, whoever acknowledges me. If we'd kept reading, we would have heard words like anyone, everyone. And so Jesus' goal is that we, disciples, would understand and willingly, gladly, even joyfully count the cost of following him. He begins in verse 24. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master, It's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? To be a disciple is to be a learner. That's what the word means. A disciple is a learner. As learners, then, it's critical that we adopt the characteristic of humility, the humility to place ourselves under the authority of our teacher and the wisdom of our master. Now, it might sound self-evident to you that a student is not above their teacher, but then again, we live in the age of student-directed learning, so I'm not sure these days. Nevertheless, Jesus gives us another illustration so that we get the point A servant is not above his master. And so when it comes to being a disciple, there is a hierarchy. There is a framework of authority. The disciple is both a student and a servant. Now, there's good news here because as you place yourself under Jesus, what happens over time is that you become like him. His priorities begin to shape yours. His character begins to shape your character and so on. That's the good news. You can be like the Son of God. There's an encouragement, isn't it? The less welcome news is that as we become like our teacher... The world will treat us as it treated him, verse 25. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, that is of the devil, how much more the members of his household? If you remember a few weeks back, do you remember when Jesus heals the two blind men and then immediately he casts out a demon and the conclusion drawn by the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees, what do they say of Jesus? It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. In other words, their assessment of Jesus is this one's of the devil. His work is evil. And now in verse 25, Jesus is simply pointing out, as they have so slandered me, as they have mistreated me, calling evil what is good, so too will the disciples be treated. Now you can disagree with me about this over morning tea if you like, but I wonder, I wonder for a minute if for the disciples amongst us, have we accepted this teaching? that we are not above our master, 
that as he was treated, so too will a disciple be treated. Have we adopted this teaching or have we adopted the cultural expectation that we will be treated with fairness? As if we Christians deserve society's respect. And I raise that because I'm constantly surprised when solidly converted disciples complain about a company or the media or a politician giving Christians a hard time. Oh, it's so unfair. They wouldn't dare target other faith groups like this. It's so hypocritical. Look at all the double standards. Now, provided, and this is an important proviso, provided disciples have conducted themselves with grace and politeness, and that doesn't always happen, but let's say disciples have conducted themselves with grace and politeness, I might be inclined to agree to a point. It can feel as if Christians are being targeted. Perhaps it is true that the media wouldn't dare antagonise other faith groups. And sure, the narrative about inclusion and diversity is hopelessly inconsistent and particularly intolerant towards Christian disciples who uphold a faithful biblical witness. Okay, let's say all of that and more is true. So what? Did you expect something different? I think Jesus would say, a student is not above his master. What did you expect from me? If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, and he has, how much more the members of his household? You know, as I listen to some celebrity preachers, I think you could be forgiven for thinking that the Christian life is one of ongoing victories and constant overcoming. More accurately, we are disciples called to humble ourselves as we follow a crucified, rejected, despised saviour. And I think we can learn from those who've gone before us, like the apostles in the book of Acts, chapter 5, as we reframe our thinking of what it is to be mistreated after being flogged for preaching about Jesus in the temple. They rejoiced, having been counted worthy of suffering for the name. As they treated Jesus, so too will they treat the disciple The question is, do we have the humility to place ourselves under our master's teaching here? So let's presume that you've decided to stand with Jesus. How do you respond in an increasingly hostile world? Well, we add to our humility a right ordering of our fears. A right ordering of our fears. That's the theme of verses 26 to 33. Rightly ordering your fears for a disciple. There's a wrong way to fear and there's a right way to fear. Hugh Latimer is a hero of church history. Like others, Cramner, Ridley and more. Latimer would be burned at the stake by the church 
for defending what we would today say is orthodox, biblical Christianity. Before that, he was a bishop in the Church of England. On one occasion, he was preaching and King Henry just happened to be in the congregation. I think we can agree that's a kind of high stakes situation. If you know anything about King Henry, you'll know he was partial to killing people who got in the way of his desire to marry multiple women. So there's that. This could go two ways for Latimer at this point. And he realised, Latimer realised he was about to say something that would offend Henry. So what do you do? Well, you quietly park this sermon and you preach another one, don't you? Oh, he took a deep breath. And he applied the teaching of our Lord. Follow verse 28. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. There's the principle. Then we get the contrast, rather... Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is, if you're going to fear anybody, you may as well at least fear the one with most power. That makes sense. But then immediately, did you notice what Jesus did? Because he's talking to disciples. He points out the Father's goodness, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care. The one we fear in in the sense of reverence and respect here is the one who cares. Notice this is family language. Your father. It's an echo of the Lord's Prayer. Our father. This is intimate language. Verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Okay, haha, there's a bull joke in there for the hairists. But this was pointed out to me. Our Father is not satisfied simply to count the hairs on your head. Anybody can do that. In his fatherly care, he numbers them. Oh, that's care, isn't it? And so verse 31, the conclusion. The principle, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body. The conclusion, don't be afraid because you're worth much more than sparrows. Your heavenly father cares. And so, having learned this teaching and having submitted himself to the Lord Jesus as his disciple, Latimer entrusted himself to his father's care. And he began his sermon saying, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. King Henry is here. And then he paused. I suspect he took a couple of deep breaths. And he continued, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. I reckon everyone would have listened to every word from then on, don't you think? There's a disciple who's learned to fear rightly. Henry has power to kill. But the king of kings is here. And so having rightly ordered his fears, Latimer was able to obey the command we see in verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, says Jesus, speak in the daylight. 
What's whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the roofs. As I heard someone put it, speaking to others about Jesus is not an optional extra. It's what disciples do. You may not be a cross-cultural missionary like Julian Martin Field. You may not be the minister of a local church like me. But in the circumstances in which God has placed you, it's the task of every disciple to speak of what they've learned from their teacher. At the very least, finding a way to declare your loyalty, to align yourself with your master. Now, it's been a long time since I've worked in an office and someone will say, look, that's easy for you minister types. But in my workplace, just mentioning Jesus is enough to get yourself put on a watch list. And that's probably true. Which makes the wisdom found earlier in chapter 10 all the more important, do you remember? Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. In other words, choose your words and your timing carefully, but speak we must. Verse 27 is not a suggestion, it's a command. And I would suggest that as this becomes more difficult, we are returning to normal. The relative peace we've enjoyed as Christianized values were at one point largely adopted by our community, that time has passed and we are returning to normal. And I mention that if only to give some perspective that times really haven't changed as much as we might think. Commenting on this passage in his own time, living in 1930s Nazi Germany, Bonhoeffer would go on to say, Bonhoeffer who was, I should mention, martyred like Latimer, Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides. If you ask me, he's speaking as a prophet for our time. They'll be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. Isn't that our experience? As devotion to Jesus is condemned as harmful, regressive, fundamentalist, bigoted, ignorant, outdated, unwelcome. Take your pick. But Jesus says, don't fear them. In our wisdom, we ought not to unnecessarily provoke. That would be foolish. But don't fear them. Because you have a Father in heaven who cares. And you have a Saviour who stands with you. Look at verse 32. It's a terrific promise. The gentleness of our Lord, whoever acknowledges me before others, this is public and it's personal. Do you notice that? Whoever acknowledges me, it's personal. It's public before others. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. What a promise. Do you imagine? Standing before the Father... All the forces of evil gathered, shouting guilty, and Jesus said, no, this one's with me. But, verse 33, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Does this mean if I've ever given in and stayed silent or at some point denied Jesus that I'm done for? Is that what he means? 
As I said at the outset, and especially under pressure, we can be very poor at determining value. We can easily lose perspective of what counts. And the experience of the Apostle Peter is reassuring, isn't it? Do you remember? He disowns Jesus under pressure. Yet what was our Lord's response? He reinstates and forgives him for what was a temporary lapse of judgment from an otherwise faithful disciple. And what's the result of his forgiveness? Empowered by the Spirit, Peter goes on to be one of the most fearless preachers you'll find in the New Testament. And so I don't think verse 33 is directed at the normal, ordinarily faithful disciple. I don't think that's who Jesus has got in mind in verse 33. I think he's warning those who are determined in their opposition. Those who are settled in their rejection. Whoever disowns me before others, I'll disown before my Father in heaven. How could it be any other way? Be that as it may. Let's resolve afresh to be those who sit willingly under our Master's loving authority. Let's entrust ourselves to the Father's care and with wisdom and shrewdness from the Spirit. Let's speak for Jesus when given opportunity. To be sure, there is a cost to being a disciple and we do well to count that cost. But when in the Father's presence... You look back, to be acknowledged by Jesus will be worth it. When he was sentenced to death, Latimer declared, I thank God most heartily that he has prolonged my life to this end, to this goal, that I may in this case glorify God by that kind of death. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. What a promise. What a future that awaits the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Be encouraged and entrust yourself to the Father's care. And submit yourself to the loving authority of our teacher and master. Let me pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your patient love towards us. That even when we're not good at remembering. In the Lord Jesus, you show us kindness and grace. And so we pray this morning, would you enable us, train us by your spirit to rightly order our fears that we would reverence you, our loving Heavenly Father, that we would entrust ourselves to your care and that we would seek to honour and glorify the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. May we listen to his word this morning and place ourselves under it that he would be glorified through us, we pray. Amen.